0: One, two, one, two, three, go. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Insights. I'm Amy Wright, and I recently had the pleasure of talking with Drew Holcomb about his new album, Strangers No More, released in early June. We caught up about Memphis, forming a band, meeting and marrying his wife, Ellie, his highly successful music festival, Moon River Festival, and of course, his amazing new album. How are you?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: Good. I love your your thumb, thumbnail of your family that pops up. When, oh, yeah. <laughs> when you pop in, was that from that trip that y'all filmed in for the state of Tennessee?
1: Yeah, it was. It was a it was a, a fun and stressful adventure.
0: And we're here to talk about "Strangers No More," the new album. And yeah. uh, we're going to talk a little bit about you first, and then we'll get to that. Going to tell you that um, we are both featured in this issue of Bourbon Plus Magazine.
1: I saw that. Yeah, I read through it. Saw y'all's y'all's playlist in there as well. That's awesome. And that's it was playing.
0: fun to 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 see your playlist and and uh, Sun Records, and they had their playlist in there. And that was yep. it was it was fun to put it together. We had a good time with that.
1: Yeah, that's a cool uh, that's a cool magazine they put out. They do a lot yeah, of it really is. Stuff. Yeah. It
0: is. Well, of course, you're a Memphis boy. We're based in Memphis. You're from yeah. here. Um, so, Memphis is very steeped in all sorts of musical traditions. And you grow up in a city like this, and it's, there's music everywhere. You know, how much did that sort of influence your musical path, or did you have parents that they were musicians? I mean, how did you sort of get interested, get the bug when you were a kid?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think my my first impressions of music were not necessarily, uh, you know, I, I would like to say that I have some super connected origin story that is like built inside of the historical fabric of of Memphis music, but you know, I grew up in the in the suburbs like most kids, listening to whatever my parents liked, which for my dad was like Bob Dylan and Motown, and for my mom was like Christian music, so. You know, I, I didn't kind of come to understand the city that I lived in and its role in the world outside of just like seeing Elvis, you know, paraphernalia until I was probably 15 or 16. Um, and that's when I you know, started going to see shows. I started going to Bill Street Music Fest when I was in the ninth grade and went every year for all three days of, of high school. Um, and so I started to kind of pick up on this greater story that was happening and so i think the the you know my my parents were very much okay with me giving music a shot sort of under the assumptions that um you know growing up in a music town like memphis there's at least some vestige of industry and of uh of professionalism associated with being a musician which doesn't necessarily exist in every city so I think that was pretty important. Um, I had friends that, you know, worked in music uh, recording studios that my dad knew. And I grew up like a lot of Memphians going duck hunting in Arkansas. And one of the guys that went to our club was a producer at Ardent Studios. And so I, I was around it a little bit, but um, not not in some, I wasn't some student of the history of the city's music until I was older.
0: When did you start playing guitar?
1: I started playing the guitar Really, like seventh and eighth grade, and for me, it was just a, a fun thing to do for a while. And then I started playing like in youth group and Young Life Club, and then started writing songs and thinking about being, being an artist. Not until I was in Knoxville as a student at UT.
0: So, when you were in high school, were you in a band, or was it more just uh, playing at home and that sort of thing? Yeah,
1: it was very casual and and hobby specific i had some friends that were in bands but it was not that was not my my scene i was uh i was like kind of a you know into like student government and theater and i sang in the in the plays and was in the chamber choir and then i played soccer i mean i just was sort of a classic like all-american high school kid did a little bit of everything wasn't great at anything but was pretty decent at a lot of things you know
0: so you played sports you played soccer so that's pretty pretty common in high school and
1: yeah yeah but, it but i love like music you were... i did have a deep love of music i mean i was the ride your bike to cats every tuesday kid starting about age 14 you know for release day and i had you know the columbia buy seven get one free. I mean, buy one get seven free special deal and then get a record a month and i had a cd collection you know eight feet tall by the time i was you know, 16 years old. So I was a big music fan. It was a, it was definitely a huge part of my life. Unlike a lot of my peers.
0: I was obsessed with going to the record store myself and I would go and there would be this guy in there. I didn't realize later that they were actually supposed to recommend things to you to buy, but uh, they, I would go in there and I would say I'm interested in, in this artist. And they would say, Oh, here's three more that you might be interested in. And a lot of times, I would just buy it on their recommendation, and they were usually pretty spot on.
1: Yeah, especially if they knew like a few other things that you liked, you know.
0: Right. Exactly. Um, So, so you went on to college at University of Tennessee, right? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah.
0: So you played Rocky Top a few times.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, everybody's. Yes, you hear Rocky Top a million times in Knoxville for sure. Right.
0: Every time you turn around, you're hearing it, or at least you hope yeah. you hear it, because you want the team to win. So. Yeah,
1: yeah, it means it means victory, unless it means victory. Unless we were playing the Tigers in basketball, and in, in which case, almost all of the Memphis students would wear blue instead, and we would cheer against our actual university and go and pull for the Tigers. So,
0: I know the pull of the Tigers is pretty is pretty strong here in Memphis. If you Absolutely. grow up here, they are your hometown team. And no so question. no matter where you go to college I think you still in your heart you're kind of pulling for your hometown town team.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So did you so in, in when you were in Knoxville did you actually start playing more were you playing gigs? Did you go out and you know kind of mm-hmm. play at bars there and that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, my junior year spring I went and studied abroad in Scotland and that's where I really started writing songs. So Um, I lost a brother in high school, a brother had special Mm -hmm. needs and passed away when I was summer after my junior year and music had been really the thing that kind of got me through that. And, uh, so when I went to study abroad in Scotland, I I took a guitar with me and, um, I didn't know what, I didn't really know anybody over there. And so I spent a lot of time sitting in my room playing guitar, sitting in my, in my sort of flat playing guitar. And I started messing with writing songs. I'd always been a very avid fan of going out to shows, and while I was in Edinburgh, I went to see a bunch of shows. I went and saw Lucinda Williams, and I saw Beck, and I saw uh, Dave Brubeck, and I went and saw like a show every couple of weeks that, for the six months I was there. And there were also all these pubs where people would play like Celtic music, and just kind of you know it was around a lot of music, and it was inspiring, beautiful historical place. And that's where I started writing songs. So when I came back from my senior year that's when I started booking local gigs and I played maybe five times that fall. And then that winter is when I came back to Memphis and I graduated, um, a semester early, which was a very foolish choice. I missed out on a whole bunch of good times for the last semester of college, but Drew, what were you thinking? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. We all make mistakes. Um, but I got a job at, um, with a guy named Paul Eversold who had been at Ardent, um, who then, had built his own studio kind of in the Brookhaven circle area and I was working for him while he was working on these kind of major label rock records and I was honing my songwriting and playing uh traveling on the weekends to play shows either sort of in the Oxford, Birmingham, Atlanta, Knoxville, Nashville, Memphis circle and that's where I started kind of writing songs and put out my first EP and really started kind of giving it a shot and that the simultaneously, I was really sort of starting to pursue Ellie at the same time and was interested in trying to get her to date me. She lived in Knoxville. So I was in Memphis for about a year and a half when I was giving it my first sort of go. And then Ellie started sort of giving me the green light. So I've moved to Knoxville to try to kind of.
0: What was your move, Drew? I mean, how did you actually land Ellie?
1: Well, we had honestly been friends for many years and we would go see shows together all the time. And my move is very, like, just open and vulnerable. She got broken up with and got her heart broken. And I just said, hey, I, I'm sorry. You, I'm, I'm really sorry about what's going on. You and I have been friends for five years. I just got to let you know that whenever you kind of come out on the other side of this thing, I would really love the first shot at taking you out. And she said, that's fair. And six months later, which is kind of a long time in my in my, it, it felt like a long time at the time. Uh, she finally let me take her out and then we kind of moved pretty quickly from there. So long friendship. Was she,
0: was she playing music as well at that point or
1: not, not, no, she was a school teacher. She, well, she was a, getting her master's in education at the time and um, teaching part-time at a high school in Knoxville. And um, you know, she, she had sang, she had sang or sung, whatever the right word is. She'd sang on a bunch of records as a kid growing up. Her dad was a music producer in Nashville. And so she sang, on like Amy Grant's Christmas record when she was like nine years old. Um, but she had no intentions of any sort of professional music career. So,
0: and then you, you two get married and did you live in Memphis at all? Or did you just immediately move to Nashville after no, that? No,
1: we, we got married and moved, moved to Nashville. She got a teaching job in East Nashville. And so she was teaching and I was touring. And then after only after a year of that, we just kind of decided either I need to quit music or you need to quit teaching and come out on the road with me. And so she chose the latter and um, we spent the next eight years on the road together before we started having kids. And then she, she sort of started doing her own thing and got and left the band.
0: So Drew Holcomb and the neighbors, when did you actually start the band? Were you already in Nashville at that point?
1: Yeah. Although I met Nathan when I was playing in Memphis, he went to Houston high school and was a senior in high school and had started playing with me um in the spring of 04 right after i got out of school so the name the neighbors didn't come around until 07 but the neighbors started playing with me in 04 and 06 and that's why the neighbors well because at the time in nashville we named the band they all live we all lived in the same neighborhood and you know we were just trying to come up with something that naming bands is so hard there's only been like five good band names ever um you know my favorite being the Heartbreakers, so um, the neighbors is what we were at the time, and it stuck, and you know, just is, is what it is at this point.
0: Well, and I'm just going to take this minute to sort of introduce the other people in the band. So you just mentioned Nathan Duggar, is it Duggar? Okay, uh, mm-hmm. guitar, Rich Brinsfield, bass, Will Sales, drums, and Ian Miller on keys, and they're they're all on Strangers No More, and we're going to get to that here in in just a few. But, um, so what do you think, uh, what did you think would be different about being in a band versus being a solo act? Cause you've been a solo act. And so what did you think you would gain by adding a full band?
1: Well, I think in, in a lot of ways, the the initial changing from being called Drew Holcomb to Drew Holcomb and the Neighbors was really just a sign of of trying to respect their contributions to what was already happening. I mean, I made one solo record without them and then starting with passenger seat in 2009 um everything i was doing was with the band and so it felt like it was honestly a little bit of a memphis thing because in nashville at the time and still in a lot of ways all of these solo acts that had bands would go into the studio and use professional studio musicians and they would their bands didn't have any creative input and that was a very sort of anti-Memphis thing to me like the the rugged kind of raw nature of the recordings that were coming out of Memphis at the time with like Corey Brannon and Lucero and North Mississippi All-Stars it felt very raw and and honest and I wanted my band to play on the records and after fighting with producers about that i I kind of won the day because I was independent and I was paying for the records. so I thought well if I'm paying for them I get to decide who's playing on them and I wanted to say like, this is a band. This is not just a solo thing. This is also a band. So it was really sort of a, a flag planting a flag in out of respect to my band and letting people know that they were part of the creative process, not just some hired guns that went on the road with me.
0: And so in 2008, you guys put out Passenger Seat. That was the, the first album as a band, right? Mm hmm. And what was what was different about that once you had your first album out did you start touring and um what did it feel different
1: yeah well it felt um it felt like we instead of just getting in the studio and throwing stuff at the wall to see what stuck we actually were trying to like we had a sound you know we were a a group of people that all had a particular way of playing and singing and and so we had a, a we were trying to you know put our stamp on these songs with a particular type of sound and that felt good to to pursue not just you know songwriting but also to pursue creating a, a a unified sort of sonic architecture you know um in in the style of the record that we made and um we started touring it didn't go the record didn't really do much in the sense of like it didn't get picked up we got a few place tv placements here and there and got a few shows but we were still really grinding it out until uh, chasing someday, which came out in two thousand eleven. That was really the record that kind of gave us our first like big break, where we started to feel like we were actually professionals and not just hobbyists. I mean, that whole era from two thousand three to two thousand eleven, there was always a big question mark of how long this was going to last. You know, just because there wasn't a lot of income from it. it. You know, I wouldn't say that we had like a consistent fan base. It was You know, it was just sort of very bootstraps until, until really 2011, 12.
0: So what is that moment? Is it when you see, you hear your record on the or song on the radio or um, you're charting on the billboard charts, or what is it that sort of feels different? And you think, okay, we're, I'm really doing this and you know, we're, we're going to be musicians. It's going to be our, our career.
1: Yeah. I think it was the right song. It was a song called live forever that, we went from just hustling and promoting and working so hard in these markets to sell 80 to 100 tickets and and then those 80 to 100 people are standing 15 to 20 feet from the stage and everybody's kind of just minding their like kind of seeing the scene like they're not necessarily fans they're like curious about the band they're not necessarily like fans of the music to when that song came out, the next tour we did was like 10 shows. And it was, I remember, I'll never forget, like Austin, Texas, the time we had been to Austin before that, I think we sold 65 tickets. And then that show, we sold sold it out 330 people at this little place called Stubbs, which is kind of like the old high tone. And same thing in Athens, Georgia. The last show we'd done there, we sold maybe 100 tickets at $7. And all of a sudden, we sold 400 tickets at $12. And there's people like, waiting at the stage you know ready to hear this and i don't recognize anyone and that was that was really the tour went oh okay this is like this is definitely different you know this is a different experience than what we've had before people are singing along to every word and you really you know and then also you're selling enough records that you're like oh we recouped the cost of recording in a matter of months not years and Um, we had a few TV placements that were enough, give us enough money to replace our broken down van and buy a new trailer. And, you know, just like the math started making sense as well as the music started connecting with people.
0: Well, it's like any career you start off in one point and you start to get a lot more experience and, and all of a sudden it clicks. Hopefully we cross our fingers, you know, Yeah. but, um, but I know along the way, you also were touring with an opening for some bigger acts like the Brothers and at the time, because y'all were new to, new to it, Robert mm-hmm. Earl Keen and others. What did these sort of, you know, veterans at touring teach you when you were sort of getting started?
1: Yeah, I think. I think the most everybody we've toured with, for the most part, has been pretty, pretty thoughtful and um, encouraging, I think. The, the, the most amazing things I've learned, the two most important things I've learned from other successful artists we've toured with is one, respecting the audience, um, like treating the audience as if their hard-earned time and hard-earned dollars are are worth giving them the, your best, you know? Uh, I think the bands that do this for a really long time, they all share that. Um, they all respect their, their audience. And then two, uh, they they take care of, their band and crew we've toured with willie nelson a lot over the years and um done three different short tours with him and almost everybody that's out with him has worked with him for like 30 plus years you know that says a whole lot not just about him as a person but about the way he takes care of people and um what kind of human being he is and so yeah i think uh, those are two sort of my two big takeaways but it, 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 the fact that people share their audiences with younger artists is, is is a really cool part of the music business that, you know, the opening act piece is a, is a neat thing. And we've had opening acts over the years that uh, after opening for us kind of blew up to much bigger places than we play. Like we, you know, Judah and the lion uh, their first like sort of multi-state tour was with us. And then all of a sudden, bam, they have this number one hit at alternative radio and they're, you know, playing Lollapalooza in front of 50,000 people. So um it's a fun piece of the of the story for us and for a lot of bands i think it's like the, who you who you've opened for who shared their audience with you so i'm i'm pretty grateful for all of those folks for that
0: it is really fun and then you can pay it forward as well like you're saying that you can actually do the same thing for another younger artist at diddy we have had so many artists through here and they're just getting started in some cases some some are further along but then you see them wow, they're playing some bigger venue and you feel like you had a little tiny piece yeah. of of their career that you might have helped them along the way in some way, you know? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, that's really the story of our career is um, to use kind of a baseball analogy, we've never really hit a bunch of home runs. We've had some for sure in the recent years, but for a lot of years, for 15 years, it was just about making new fans through through you know, small TV placements or podcasts or opening for somebody or playing at the the early stage on this festival or doing interviews, having a write up in the local paper. I mean, enough of those things happen, and they add together and then people start paying attention. You know, if they read about you on, you know, in the in the in the Memphis Fire and then they see you on a Diddy TV piece or, you know, all those things kind of over time they start to they start to make a lot of difference. And so yeah, I, I feel like our success as a, as a band is like on the shoulders of hundreds of people who've kind of shared their platform with, with us and with our fans.
0: Well, then sort of fast, uh, fast forward, you had 2015's Medicine and 2019's Dragons actually, that you collaborated with Lori McKenna, Natalie Hemby and Zach Williams, and maybe some others. Was that the first album that you actually wrote, co-wrote songs or had you already done that previously?
1: Uh, it was the first time in a decade. I, I wrote, co-wrote two or three songs on um, Chasing Someday that came out in 2011. But um, I wrote those songs in like 2009 and 10. But yeah, I took a, like almost a decade from co-writing, except for with there were a couple songs with the band and a couple with Ellie. But I didn't write with anyone outside of our space for a long time. And um, that was a good season. I'm gra- I think that we needed on medicine, on Good Light, medicine souvenir to establish ourselves as as artists to establish our sound and our identity and then once that was a st- sort of we were comfortable in that I got more comfortable with the idea of sharing the cre- in the creativity and really the Goodbye Road EP that I did with Johnny Swim and Penny and Sparrow was the spark that kind of gave me the freedom to co-write more and so Dragons I co-wrote a ton and on this new record I co-wrote a, a fair bit and yeah I think I still sort of probably prefer to write alone, um, but with the right people, I really do enjoy collaborating and 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 co-writing. It, it can be a really fruitful experience if if you if you kind of know and trust each other.
0: Is that one of the advantages of, for example, living in a town like Nashville, where so many artists are there? You just throw a penny out the front door and you find somebody that you can work with? I mean, there's a lot of collaboration opportunities, I would
1: think. That's certainly a big part of it. I think people here are used to collaborating um, and co-writing just because that's a big part of the culture of creativity here. Uh, And there's so many professional musicians from all over the country. And so, um, you know, some people get trapped in that. That's all they do is just sit around and co-write all day. And it can be hard to sort of have a creative identity if, if you do nothing but that. Um, but I think I've found a nice balance where typically if I'm writing with somebody I know or they know whether we're writing for their project or my project. And so whoever's project it is is sort of captaining the co-write. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't write every day, but I probably write every week. And about half the time I'm co-writing and half the time I'm writing by myself. And um, it's a good balance for me to do to do both.
0: So when did you start the, um, highly successful moon river music festival? It's a great festival and I know mm-hmm. it was in Memphis and now it's in Chattanooga, right? Or is yep. it okay? Still in Chattanooga. And why did you start it? And when was that?
1: The first year we did, it was 2013. Uh, we did it at the Levitt shell for three or I guess it's the Overton park shell. Now uh, they, they went back to the old name, but, um, the Overton park shell for, for three years, um, and then kind of we, we actually had sort of decided we were just going to stop doing it all together, not because it wasn't successful. It was just because it was I'm not a festival promoter and my manager is not either. And we were basically like putting a second mortgage on our houses to put this festival on and then hoping that people came and it didn't rain and that we sold enough beer and T-shirts to cover the cost of paying it, all the bands and, and, and et cetera. So <laughs> and that stress was really getting to us and around the same time AC entertainment out of Knoxville had was looking to do something in Chattanooga and they said we'll take it over if you guys will consider moving it you know to to Chattanooga um this mm-hmm. is around the same time that Memphis had started in Memphis and mm-hmm. we just it, we just didn't have the same sort of like um uh backing that I didn't want to like go head to head with with that, with the big with a big budget festival um and The, and the Shell was an incredible partner, but they have so many of their own shows going on that their calendar was pretty limited. And uh, But they were a great partner for the years that we did it there. And I really started it just because I wanted to gather bands that I loved and saw all over the road and bring them to one place and have a kind of a big family reunion with fans and artists alike. And um, it was great. And, and since it's moved on to Chattanooga, it's kind of grown in scale but it's that same ethos is still sort of, is still sort of the sort of rudder of the festival.
0: I'm a huge fan of Chattanooga. I think it's so pretty there. It's a beautiful place. Yeah. It is. It really is a great place to have a festival for sure. Um, and, um, so let's talk about the latest album, Strangers No More. It's your ninth studio album. And you wrote, I read some of this pre pandemic or during the pandemic and some after, um, how would you describe the influence of going through the pandemic on the album and how did things change from a writing perspective with the songs you you wrote before to the songs you wrote after?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that the general theme of the record is definitely more introspective than anything I've done before. It's sort of a, you know, um, I turned 40 in this process, went through this pandemic. My kids have gotten a little older and, um, the, the songs that i wrote on the front end of the of the record tend to be uh, like fly is one the first song on the record i wrote probably 3 weeks before the pandemic started and so i had no idea what was coming obviously um but there there's a good number of the songs that were written i would say probably th- 2 or 3 were written pre-pandemic and the rest were all written kind of middle post pandemic but um what what the record reflects is I think a, a, lot, a lot of looking in the mirror uh, about what matters, um, who I am. Uh, like I take a song like find your people. I mean, I think in in, in the pandemic, we all were really, we had a lot of things taken from us, you know, the things that we love and Nashville in particular, East Nashville where I live, got hit with a tornado um, t- basically 12 days before bottom dropped out and quarantine started. And so we were out of power when the world fell apart and couldn't even, we were like staying with my, my in-laws. And then they're like, Oh, you can't be around anybody. And my father-in-law has like an immunocompromised situation, hadn't had an immunocompromised situation at the time. Um, he's since been healed of, which is a beautiful thing, but um, we had to leave and go back to our powerless house. And then it was like, Oh, you can't be around your neighbors. And we're like, man, we just we're like trying to build each other's fences and stuff back up. And it was just a really brutal season it caused a lot of introspection so anyways we all had a lot taken from us and this is a record about looking on looking at that time and what what's left and there's still a lot left you know i still have friendships i've got gratitude for you know um i mean the whole song is just kind of a a list of all the things to be grateful for even in light of difficulty um and then there's like fun songs that are sort of universal in time and space like all the money in the world is just like a classic you know um soul pop love song apology song that that could fit on a motown record as much as it could fit on my record and so there's like a mixture of time stamped songs on this record and then songs i think that could sort of exist on on when recorded at any point and, um but more than anything i think this record just reflects a band that is had their main thing taken away from them and then they got back together they were just really grateful to be making music together and we had a lot of fun recording songs in sort of a a lot of different sort of corners of our of our of our sort of genre um you know paradigm whatever that is you know so um
0: where did you record the album
1: oh we did in Asheville, north carolina at a place called Echo Mountain it's a it's an old church that's become a professional studio and we've done we did dragons there as well but we just love it it's Asheville's a great town There's a lot of food near the venue you can walk to and so we also all everybody in the band except for one has children and so getting out of town is very productive for us because we can work 12 hour 15 hour days and not be worried about you know missing a soccer practice or something so we sort of go and buckle down and Work really hard for you know we think we're there twelve days and, and then um, and then come home with this big pile of recordings to sift through and make a record out of it.
0: So I also was reading that you did a lot of the takes live or multiple times live, but you wanted a certain live quality to the songs. so what mm-hmm. what did p- playing them live? Um, how did that differ from, say, just the normal recording process where you're tracking, laying down yeah. tracks?
1: Well, you know, as a band that plays a lot live together, um, there's an energy and a push and pull in the way that everybody plays relative to how everyone else is playing. And so when you record and you just start with, oh, the drummer does the thing and he just does his thing and then that's what it is. And then the bass player puts his thing on top of that. When that happens, the drummer's not reacting at all in real time to what the bass player is doing because he's already recorded his part and then sort of stacks on that. So I don't I don't like that very much because I I feel like there's miss there's a missing sort of give and take and attention that happens and I think that tension brings out the best in and everybody and they and they play better and I'm a big student of like Tom Petty and Heartbreakers recordings over the years and he 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 talks about that a lot how, you know sometimes sometimes take one is the take sometimes take twenty nine is the take and we just have allowed ourselves to like Keep doing it until we feel like we have one and sometimes we'll we'll be like on take four and we'll all kind of say man that was that's probably the take market let's run it three or four more times and then about 50 percent of the time take number eight also we go no actually we did get better that's better and then the other 50 of the time we will be like take 12 and we're like nope take it back to number four that's the one and then we sort of take that that take and then we build on top of that, you know, kind of finesse a little bit here and there. Maybe I do some extra vocals, et cetera. So that's sort of, we're just, you know, all of us are big fans of artists like the band and um, Wilco and people that have recorded in a more traditional sort of classic way where the musicians are actually like playing off of each other in real time. And um, my band is really good. They're able to do that well. And that's sort of an important, important ethic for me.
0: I've often wondered why more bands don't record live because in the beginning of recording, that's what everyone did. Your whole band went in the studio, everyone plugged in, you recorded a song and that was that. And some of the most iconic songs that we have out there were recorded that way. And then all of a sudden we got into, you know, so many tracks and so much, so many layers in, in the songs. And it seems to me that you do miss that sort of emotional dynamic that comes from a live performance.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think, honestly, like, a lot of bands don't have the reps to pull it off in an efficient manner, and so it gets expensive when you can't pull it off. Now, that's no offense to those bands, because that's just, like, not everybody's, you know, way of doing things, but um, when when we tell other bands, that's how we record, a lot of times they look at us like we're aliens, you know, like, why would you do it that way? You know, you can just go in there and fix it in the computer. We're like, yeah, but it's like I don't know eating like like a like a I don't know sort of man-made food that's not the same as like a, a real tomato, you know, it's like I don't know science music
0: so there are a number of great songs in the album. I really enjoyed listening to it, and it ends with the joyous sort of dance with everybody that you co-wrote with uh, old Crow Medicine's frontman catch Secor Secor.
1: C-Core. Yeah.
0: C-Core. C-Core. There
1: you go. Yeah. Um,
0: so what did he bring to the song and why did you choose that particular song to, uh, in the album?
1: Yeah. I mean, Catch is, uh, an incredible personality. If you've ever seen them play, he has like the energy of like a 12 year old. I mean, he's just very, he's magnetic on stage. He's like, though, a really fun show. Um, this song was a conversation about um, about how we missed the audience and we wanted to write a song about how we just want to get out in the middle of the audience and dance with everybody because we haven't been allowed to be near anybody for two years at this point. So um, yeah, it was just an ode to the, to the crowd. You know, we both love making records, but I think both of us love the show more, you know, I know I do. So we wanted to, just sort of timestamp the 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 thank you and the invitation to join the crowd. And um, that's where the title of the record came from, is, is from that lyric in the first verse, um, strangers no more, I want to dance with everybody who came through that door. So uh, it felt like the right song um, to sort of, I don't know, to sort of sum up the record, you know, it's just an invitation uh it's a really fun song to play live and on the fall tour i debuted the song and would jump into the crowd and just run around like high-fiving people and dancing with people and it was just total like the 30 year old me would never have done that because i took myself too seriously and now 40 year old me is much more sort of free and comfortable in my own skin it was a it was a really fun way to close out the night
0: will you guys be touring this summer
1: we go on tour for the rest of the summer opening for Darius Rucker all over the country, uh, doing amphitheaters and sheds. And, uh, and then we'll, we'll do our own headline tour starting in mid September through kind of the end of October. So we got a lot, so a it, lot going on. I
0: was going to say, it seems like, uh, you're going to be on the road for the next six months. Is is do you like touring?
1: I do like touring. Yeah. Thankfully Darius's tour is all kind of weekend warriors. So I'll be home four days every week, but, Uh, Yeah, I do like it. I I do get tired of it as well. So I have to pace myself. Uh, But in general, I do really love it. And um, I get pretty excited about it. And I think this tour in particular will be a pretty special one because the nature of this record, it's just these songs just sort of scream that they want to be played with a live audience songs like all the money and that's on you that's on me and even on a roll finding people there's just there's a lot of energy on this record i think it's going to translate well in a, in a live setting
0: well drew thank you so much for joining us today the album's out june 7th it's a great album everyone needs to run out and get it but more importantly they need to come see you live because that's where all the fun is right
1: yep absolutely i look look forward to it and i really appreciate you having me on
0: For listening to this episode of Insights, it was great to talk with Drew Holcomb about his life and his music, and I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I did. We have a large library of artists and industry podcasts, so check out some of our other interviews when you have the time, right here on Insights.